Okay, I think um, we'll get started. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming along. It's great to see you all here. Um, this is our third talk um, of this series and the first one of the new year. So um, we're really excited to have um, Darius Wainwright and Alice Ferguson. Um, just before we get started, um, I'll just introduce myself. I'm Francesca Akhtar. I'm a PhD student uh, here at the Institute. And um, me and Alan sort of had this idea last year to set up some, have some regular talks on US foreign policy and national security at the Institute. And uh, so we will be having some um, other events coming up this term. So just to let you know, uh, in two weeks, on February the 10th, we've got uh, a talk by Dr. Atul Bardwaj, who uh, is talking about his recently published book, US-India Relations, 1942-62, rooted in this liberal international order. Um, and the registration for that is already open um, on Eventbrite, and there's um, details on UCL um, website, and Twitter, and Facebook. Um, and then on March the 2nd, we have a panel on Anglo and North American intelligence. Uh, the registration for that isn't open yet, but that's will probably be up in about two, two or three weeks. And then we, we possibly, we're still um, confirming, um, but we possibly, hopefully, will have a panel on uh, March the 23rd, uh, just before Easter. Um, on US-China relations, so hopefully we'll have some more details about that that uh, will circulate um, when we've confirmed it. Um, okay, so I will hand you over to Alan. Um, yeah, so hi everyone, my name is Alan Barbant and I'm also helping out Francesca with this. Um, before we start, since we want to do this more regularly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a piece of paper and only if you want to put your name down and email address. This way we can send you emails about whatever events we prepare in the future. Again, it's not compulsory, but only if you feel like it. The pen and the paper. So if you could pass that around, that would be great. Um, so yeah, welcome to the third event of the UCL Institute of the Americas Foreign Policy and National Security Seminar Series. Um, I'm going to do a short introduction of the panelists, and then I'll just We'll just get to the talks and to the Q&A session afterwards. Um, so right next to me is Darius Wainwright. Um, Darius is a lecturer in the Department of History at the University of Reading and a guest teacher in the London School of Economics' International History Department. Darius's research focuses on Anglo-American public diplomacy. He has recently completed his PhD on exploration of British and American cultural diplomacy in Iran in the 1950s. He's currently writing an article on U.S. sports diplomacy in Iran and is undertaking research on the U.S., Iran, and the 1939 and 1964 New York World Fairs. Darius is a former Eccles Center Fellow at the British Library. He has contributed to media outlets such as TRT, France 24, Al Jazeera, and Channel 5. Darius has also reviewed publications on U.S. foreign policy for Asia Diplo and has contributed to University of Southern California's Center for Public Diplomacy's blog. At the end of the table, we have Alex Ferguson. Dr. Alex Ferguson is a teaching fellow in modern American history at the University of Southampton. He completed his PhD at the same institution in August 2018. His PhD project provides the first detailed examination of the role and influence of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon during the initial U.S. commitment in Vietnam in the early 1950s. Alex is currently in the process of moving this project to, to publication. He had an article published on the press management activities of the embassy, the subject of tonight's talk and diplomatic history in 2018, and a chapter on the Saigon Embassy's involvement in the 1954 Dinh Binh Phu crisis is set to appear in an edited volume analyzing embassies in crisis later this year. So guys, thank you for coming. 
And yeah, let's get the talks started. Um, who wants to go first? I'll kick off, shall I? Cool. Sure. Thank you. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, thank you to Francesca and Alan for, for inviting me uh, along and organizing this um, event. Uh, as Alan already kind of noted in the uh, introduction, this paper is part of a, a wider project that comes out of my PhD that examined uh, the sort of early history of the US Embassy in, in Saigon during the first major phase of US involvement in Vietnam. It really begins in 1950 with the US decision to provide military and economic assistance to France uh, in support of France's colonial war against uh, Ho Chi Minh's Viet Minh, and then ends with the French defeat in that conflict uh, at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954. Uh, and one of the major issues of that period and that my project tries to um, engage with is, is with a, the, the difficult Franco-American relationship that dominated that period and that impeded the Western effort to subdue uh, the Viet Minh. Uh, and while scholars have shown how a variety of sort of suspicions, misperceptions, and disagreements shaped this quite tense, quite unproductive relationship between those two uh, Western powers, they rarely acknowledge French sensitivity towards the reporting uh, of the American press and the American press's adverse impact on that Franco-American uh, effort. Studies of the press during the Vietnam War uh, focused almost entirely on the second Indochina War, so the Vietnam War that most of us will be more familiar with, of kind of major US uh, military involvement in Southeast Asia in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, and so given the kind of preoccupation of uh, the United States with its own defeat uh, in Vietnam, the small number of reporters who traveled to cover this first Indochina conflict in the late 40s uh, 1950s and the American public's relatively limited interest in that first Indochina conflict. This scholarly neglect um, is not surprising. Uh, those historians who have discussed the role of the US press um, in that first Indochina war have actually kind of downplayed the media's importance to US policymakers and to the Franco American uh, relationship, suggesting that actually American correspondents largely, sh largely shared policymakers' understanding of Vietnam's Cold War importance and actually encouraged uh, US citizens to support the French uh, conflict. Um, so this paper kind of challenges that uh, perception, it argues that American press reporting was a major concern of US officials during the 1950s. Uh, and over the next sort of, 15, 20 minutes or so, I'm going to explore why American press reporting assumed such significance for US officials during this period. I'm going to try and analyze also the efforts then of American diplomats on the ground to shape press correspondence coverage of that first Indochina war. I'm going to argue that although US diplomats enjoyed some success, that actually they were unable to prevent the appearance of a series of critical and pessimistic articles uh, in American publications that threatened primary American goal in Indochina during the early 1950s. And that was maintaining France's very fragile commitment to fighting this conflict in Southeast Asia. In doing so, the paper also hopes to expand scholarly understanding of the tools that the United States employed to try and preserve France's um, war effort. 
Generally, historians, when they, when they tried to explain how the United States tried to do this, um, they stressed the US military and economic assistance program that the United States started providing in 1950. And that seems to be the kind of sole factor, really, that historians um, have pointed to. But this paper reveals that US officials also turned to press management in their effort to shore up this French uh, commitment. And although Washington made the odd intervention in press management, um, I'm going to argue here that press management was actually the primary responsibility of the US mission in Indochina. So American diplomats working uh, in, in Indochina um, itself, which throughout this period, so the four, sort of four and a half years of, of the, this first major phase of US involvement was under uh, the leadership of a career diplomat uh, called Donald Keith, and it's this on-the-ground uh, effort that the paper um, is going um, to focus on. Um, okay, so why, why did American uh, press reporting emerge as an important issue for the US government in the early uh, 50s? Mm. Firstly, the French complained about it. Um, and although US officials had been able to kind of bat away those French complaints about the reporting of the American media in the late 1940s, when the United States occupied a relatively neutral position in the conflict between France and the Vietnam. President Truman's decision in 1950 to supply American assistance to the French transformed the US role uh, in Vietnam and its attitude towards press management. So viewing Indochina then as central to the effort to prevent communist expansion in Southeast Asia, and reluctant to employ their own troops in Vietnam, particularly after the war in Korea began uh, in June 1950, US policymakers sought to do all they could to bolster the French effort. And in the early 50s, this, this French commitment appeared under, under serious threat. The war had entered a relative stalemate by the early 1950s, uh, and the cost of French blood and French treasure was mounting, leading to, uh, in some uh, quarters to calls for a negotiated settlement end the war that would likely result in a communist or a Vietnam takeover of Vietnam. And American policymakers feared that American press reports might be the straw that broke the camel's back. The French were highly sensitive to any criticism in the American press, with French perceptions of the official US position on Indochina uh, often coloured by stories that appeared in the American media. The French accused reporters of writing false and tendentious stories that damaged French morale and gave opponents of the war fuel to push harder for a negotiated settlement and threatened repeatedly to send their troops home if such affronts in the American media continued. US officials also believe that the increased tension that such press reports caused between US officials and their French counterparts would do little to make French officials more open more receptive to American advice on how the war in Vietnam should be fought. Additionally, knowing that the success of the French war effort relied on congressional support for the US government's aid package in Indochina, US officials worried that critical American press coverage of the conflict might cause Congress to question the value of the assistance that it was sending to Southeast Asia. Um, and so while uh, I think a number of other factors are more important in explaining France's shift towards embracing uh, a negotiated settlement in, in uh, Southeast Asia, so we can think about the great human and economic cost of the conflict, the armistice in Korea, 
concerns over the Indochina's uh, war's effect on France's ability to be able to defend its borders um, in Europe. Nevertheless, broader concerns about the loyalty of the press in the United States, its power in shaping both domestic and international opinion, and the lack of diplomatic leverage that US officials uh, enjoyed over the French ensured that press management assumed great importance for US officials. Uh, and indeed, the US government's anxiety about the press's ability to undermine its policy in Indochina reflected broader concerns about the press's influence and loyalty during the Second Red Scare of the late 1940s and early 1950s. And policymakers deemed the press as an important target for communist infiltration in the United States. Because as one Senate investigation noted, quote, of their access to sensitive information and because they influence public opinion. Press coverage of the Chinese Civil War raised particular concerns in Washington about the loyalty of the foreign state. A judge to have undermined Chiang Kai-shek with their pessimistic coverage, several journalists lost their jobs during the 1950s. Those who stayed on to cover events in Asia were treated with some suspicion by American diplomats. And in a meeting at the US Embassy in Saigon in 1950, one former China correspondent was warned against undermining the French with the same defeatist reporting that had allegedly blighted the anti-communist effort in China. The great stress that US officials placed on press management in Indochina came also as Washington began to embrace public diplomacy as an important Cold War weapon. One of the chief targets of this public diplomacy campaign was France, where policymakers worried that the neutralist and anti-American tendencies of the French public might have an adverse effect on the US effort to combat global communism. US officials planted stories in the French media, subsidized supportive French publications, and moved to discredit journalists that espoused ideas damaging to US interests. And so we see here then that the US mission's efforts in Vietnam represented just one component in a larger public diplomacy effort aimed at France. US officials also turned to press management because it was one of the few ways that they could actually influence developments in Vietnam in the 1950s. The hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of aid that the United States provided to the French failed to tilt that conflict decisively in France's failure, nor did it make French officials any more open to sharing decision-making responsibility with the United States. As the United States found with a, a number of its Cold War partners, French policymakers were aware that uh, USA would continue to flow regardless of their receptiveness to American advice. Cold War calculations, in this sense, necessitated continued US support of their efforts. Despite these American concerns about the reporting of their, of their journalists, for the most part, American press reports in Indochina posed few problems for US officials. Journalists tended to view the war, the first Indochina war, largely through the same Cold War prism as US officials, and were generally in accord with their government's decision to support France's conflict. Henry Luce, the editor-in-chief of Time Life, uh, was one of the strongest supporters. His publications placed French commanders on their iconic cover pages. You can see uh, Generals uh, Latra. Uh, and Henri Navarre on the, on the cover of Time magazine here. His publications also heralded the importance of the French war to the global effort 
against uh, Soviet-inspired communism and wrote relatively optimistically about French progress in conflict. The New York Times, too, seemed happy to tow the French line. Meeting with French authorities in December 1951, editor Robert Ora Smith asked, what can my paper do to help you in the fight you are so courageously waging? After the French stressed the need for Smith's newspaper to highlight the importance of France's war to the global struggle against communism, Smith answered, we were trying to do that all along. Strict French censorship um, and restrictions that reporters faced in visiting the battlefields in Indochina also limited the opportunities for American journalists to write critically of the war. The limited resources that American publications devoted to the Indochina story, as I already mentioned, it was a conflict of relatively little interest to the, to the US public, restricted US correspondents to sporadic and short-term visits to Indochina that made it difficult for them to build up the contacts and the knowledge base to challenge the official version of events more consistently. Journalistic culture in the 1950s also made American reporters generally uninterested in seeking out alternative sources, with reporters happy to rely primarily on what they saw as the more reliable and more respectable official French and American sources to inform their pieces. Associated Press correspondent Larry Allen was one of the worst culprits. Allen rarely ventured into the field during his time in Indochina. Indeed, a colleague of Allen's in the Vietnam press corps was told by him that, quote, he had not left Hanoi for eight months, uh, and that he had simply sat in Hanoi rewriting official pronouncements. Allen was later awarded the Croix de Guerre uh, in 1952 in recognition of his scrupulous concern for objectivity. So despite the, these severe restrictions under which American correspondents worked, articles exposing the lack of French progress in the conflict and criticising French military tactics still appeared, with some journalists able to track down dissenting voices and use the mail to circumvent French censors. The restrictions that France placed on correspondents in Indochina also had unintended consequences. Strict French censorship and their refusal to provide correspondence with speedy access to the battlefields created a tense relationship between the American press and the French military in Vietnam that made journalists more likely to write critically of the war. Okay, so on to um, the system that the US mission then devised to, to try and shape the reporting of American uh, journalists. Every new American correspondent that arrived in the country, as well as American visitors and members of staff who joined the mission, uh, were briefed carefully about US policy, about French sensitivities, and about the Cold War significance of developments in Indochina. Aware that these careful briefings may not be enough to convince journalists to play by the rules because of, uh, quote, the demands of home editors on their correspondents here for exciting news or dope stories. The mission then looked to incentivise helpful reporting through both carrot and stick. Correspondents were often cosseted and wooed by US officials in an attempt to shape the tone of their coverage. Uh, on one visit, the columnist uh, Joseph Alsop, you can see a picture of there uh, on the slide, was quite picked up at the airport by the ambassador's chauffeur, provided with a room at the ambassador's residence, and US officials were then ordered to run his copies over to the cable office. 
When such carrots failed, mission officials were prepared to employ the stick. Uh, for example, when the, US, uh, when the French military threatened to throw a correspondent in jail because of rumours that he was set to air a story reporting that the French military hierarchy were at loggerheads during the climactic battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954, Ambassador Donald Heath asserted that if, that if the correspondent refused to kill the story, that he'd be told, quote, that this embassy would find it difficult to intervene on his behalf if the French followed through on their threats to imprison him. Despite these systems, US representatives were often forced into firefighting measures to limit the damage done to Franco-American relations by American correspondents. And US officials were sometimes to blame. Despite the Saigon mission's careful briefings, US officials chose occasionally to speak their minds, frustrated by France's lack of progress and refusal to listen to American advice. Those who worked in the American economic and technical aid missions in Vietnam were particularly <coughs> susceptible. As one aid official later recalled, um, several quote, of the officers in the division were taken from business or professional life or taken from retirement and thus not part of the foreign service or civil service. They handled their jobs as private individuals and not as members of a team. The most explosive incidents of, of, of this kind of American uh, officials sort of breaking rank with the instructions of the, of, of, uh, the ambassador uh, took place in August 1953, uh, following the publication of an article that you can see a couple of uh, pages of up there on the slide by uh, David Douglas Duncan uh, in Life magazine. Uh, and this article attacked French military tactics, France's commitment to the fight in Indochina, and their reliance on American aid. And this damaging section of the article quoted two American aid workers who described a wasteful US aid program, criticized French interference in Vietnamese affairs, and decried the lack of a more forceful US stance in Vietnam. <coughs> the wonderfully named Herman Holiday uh, suggested in this article that it's difficult to be on a losing team. It's worse to be on a losing team and know it. It's unforgivable to be on a losing team and know it and do nothing about it. The French were outraged. Uh, Foreign Minister Georges Bedeau threatened to have the magazine pulled from Parisian store shelves, while the French weekly, Paris Match, criticised Duncan's article as representative of the short-sightedness of the United States' policy of anti-colonialism. US officials in Saigon feared that the fallout caused by the article might encourage a French departure, at a time when, as one report from Paris noted, support for a negotiated withdrawal may be expected to fall on more responsive ears and would have been the case at any time since US aid programs began. They were also concerned that Holiday's comments might threaten the continuation of the US aid program. While Congress had remained largely supportive of the government's policy in Indochina thus far, pessimistic news from Vietnam had pushed some lawmakers, including a very young John F. Kennedy, earlier in 1953, um, to insist that any extension of US aid uh, to France be conditioned on improved French performance in the war. <clears throat> so what did US officials do about it? Well, Ambassador Heath was, was placed in charge uh, of repairing the damage. He reiterated to his colleagues the mission's press policy, 
uh, informing them of the need to air any policy differences through private channels and not through conversations with the American media. The ambassador also vented his frustration to Life editor Henry Luce. And in response, Luce placed his journalist, David Douglas Duncan, on the inactive list and authorised the publication of a repost in the 21st September issue uh, of Life. Again, you can see an image from Heath's piece up here. Uh, the article, which was an edited version of a, of a letter of complaint that Heath wrote uh, to, to Luce, provided a much rosier appreciation of the Indochina situation than Duncan's initial article, asserting that France was moving towards an eventual victory, as you can see from the headline, that it was fighting the good fight in Indochina. This article was received warmly in Paris and Washington, with Congress voting to extend further US assistance to France's war effort that same month. US officials in Indochina also looked to push France to improve their handling of the press. On several occasions throughout the early 1950s, journalists complained about the limited information they received from French authorities, the heavy press censorship they had to endure, and the lack of access they were given to the battlefield. American officials were convinced that French mismanagement of American correspondence made reporters more likely to write critically of the war, generating reports that might threaten the supply of American aid or the broader American commitment. And so in late 1953, we have an episode where Secretary of State John Foster Dulles argued that France's inability to provide adequate news briefings to correspondents had adversely affected American reporting of the Vietnamese incursion into uh, neighboring Laos. While US representatives on the scene in their reports downplayed the importance of this incursion, news reports wrote that the Vietnamese were now moving to secure northern Indochina after having succeeded in soaring Laos in half. And according to life reporter John Mecklin, these alarmist reports exaggerating the proportions of the French setback in Laos were a direct result of the French decision to prohibit newsmen from travelling to the French command post until a few days later. Given that order, Mecklen believed that some journalists made the not illogical jump that the attack must have been of a very serious nature and therefore talked its impact up in their pieces. American uh, officials then took this issue with the French, uh, to the French rather, uh, to try and improve their handling of the media. These efforts uh, were met with very limited success. Despite American pressure, French officials resisted making major changes to their handling of foreign correspondence. The best American diplomats could achieve was a slight reduction in the number of copies that journalists had to submit to French press officers, from three to two, uh, and a lessening of, pre of press censorship during the Battle for Dien Bien Phu in 1954. Again, with the United States so invested in France's war, French officials knew that they could ignore American suggestions without any serious fear of reprisals. And they were right. USA continued to flow into French coffers despite their refusal to satisfy American requests for more liberal press policy. On their press policy, the French, I think, were stuck here between a rock and a hard place. While a relaxation of press censorship and other restrictions would have created a more productive relationship with the foreign press, it would have also provided journalists with a fuller and perhaps more realistic picture of French military failings and exposed official exaggerations about their progress in conflict. Uh, so to, to conclude then, um, the paper demonstrates, I think, that US officials were deeply interested in the reports of the American media during the first Indochina war, 
And the management of the American press formed a really integral part of the US effort to try and sustain France's fragile commitment in Indochina. Fearful of the effects of such reports on French morale, the French commitment to the war, and on the continuance, a continuation rather, of the American aid program, US officials in the diplomatic mission played an integral role in managing the press, trying to minimize, firstly, the appearance of negative and pessimistic reports, and then, when those efforts failed, to repair any damage caused to Franco-American relations. Although US preventative efforts, French controls, and the tendency of American reporters to look to official sources to inform their articles resulted in largely favorable coverage of the war in the press, a small number of American journalists were nevertheless able to bypass French centers French censors seek out alternative assessments of the conflict and publish critical and pessimistic articles. Officials, I think, had difficulty in preventing these stories from appearing because of French refusals to adjust their handling of the press and the availability of frustrated French, Vietnamese, and American officials willing to offer a more critical and realistic picture of the war than the official line provided by Paris. This failure, I think, speaks to the US's lack of leverage with the French and indeed some of the limits of public diplomacy. The Indochina case reveals that public diplomacy can only go so far in concealing unwelcome realities. Deeds in this instance did not match words, and information that French forces were not making the military gains suggested by official proclamations occasionally found its way to French and American controls. Okay. Thanks, Okay. So, February 1998, um, the Iran Wrestling Federation invited an American delegation to the prestigious uh, Takti uh, Wrestling Tournament. Um, though this wasn't widely reported in the American media, uh, the occasion was doubtless significant. Um, inviting US representatives to compete and participate in Iran's national sport in one of its most <coughs> prestigious wrestling tournaments signal the cultural coming together of two nations who, for the 20, roughly 20 years prior to this point, had shared a very tense, fractious relationship. Um, the sporting exchange formed part of broader efforts by the then Iranian president, uh, Mohammad Khatami, and the Clinton administration to repair and bolster US-Iranian ties. Um, the Iranian authorities, um, the Tati tournament was and is an annual event um, every February, January, February, and um, up until 2017, American delegations were invited um, in response to Donald Trump's travel ban, however, uh, the Iranians barred American competitors. Um, the use of sport here, though, to strengthen and develop US-Iran relations it's nothing new. Um, these endeavours began during the early Cold War, um, so from the 1950s onwards, uh, White House and State Department officials regarded the strengthening of US-Iranian ties as crucial, um, vehemently opposed to communism. Uh, the Shah, or the then Shah of Iran, uh, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, um, led efforts to um, you know, quash the activities of the Soviet-backed two-day Communist Party in Iran. Um, and State Department officials at the same time feared that um, the USSR, 
who neighboured Iran, both on its north and its eastern borders, uh, sought to meddle and exercise considerable influence over Iranian affairs. Iran is a country that straddles key geopolitical regions, Indian subcontinent to its east, Persian Gulf to its south, and of course the Arab world to its west. And Iran, or State Department officials viewed Iran as a platform, as a landing stage for the Soviet Union to penetrate and then use to spring into these other regions. Um, rather than deterring or um, coercing Iranians from kind of supporting communist views or approving of Soviet subversive activities, uh, these sport and public diplomacy initiatives aim to also attract Iranians more towards the United States. Uh, they would aim to alter foreign perceptions, influence domestic audiences, um, promote the integration of culture, and last of all, encourage bilateral business dealings. Um, the two fields in which the US sought to engage with the public, at least through public diplomacy efforts, was through sport, first and foremost, but also culture. So uh, the former, broadly conceived, covers all policies where sport develops and strengthens diplomatic ties. This can include athletic visits from US sports stars, um, coaching exchanges, <coughs> the supplying of equipment, the investment in facilities, um, and more broadly, the fostering of a sporting culture in a target country. Um, cultural diplomacy, on the other hand, uh, covers the exchange of norms, values, and ideas across cultures and borders to foster a mutual understanding. This could be at a highbrow level or more lowbrow, popular music, uh, dance, etc. Um, when it comes to these sorts of public diplomacy efforts, um, policies were normally implemented by the United States Information Agency, or USIA for short, whose logo is conveniently cut and pasted from Google Images onto this PowerPoint site. Um, so, um, the United States Information Service, um, the USIA had its offices in Washington, but the United States Information Service, who normally were located in embassies across the globe, American embassies across the globe, normally implemented their, the initiatives on the USIA's behalf. Um, both organisations had been established by um, President Eisenhower upon entering office in 1953. Um, what I wanted to do today is talk about how or chart public, public diplomacy in Iran from when roughly the American government started or began um, these sorts of efforts with Iran uh, through to the end of, well, right, which was right at the start, the Eisenhower administration, right through to the end. So I'm looking at you know, the rationale behind this, some of the initiatives employed. I'm aware that I only have 20 minutes, so I can't go into everything, only kind of pick like, the key kind of points. But also, on top of that, the perceptions to which or US perceptions of how successful or not they were at doing this. Um, in so doing, um, as the kind of the title of this suggests, initially the Americans go along the route of cultural diplomacy, they then revert to sport, and then go full circle back to cultural diplomacy again. Um, this element of US-Iran relations 
isn't something that's been particularly looked at before, at least in this era. So most, most, uh, most scholars, most of literature tends to focus on military and economic interactions between the two countries, which were undoubtedly significant. But this provides a different perspective on US-Iran relations in this period. Um, you know, it feeds into kind of you know discourse on the use of soft power, um, also the use of culture in the cultural Cold War, but also kind of more broadly the use of sport. So sports diplomacy is a relatively growing field. Uh, yes, you know, discussions of sport in history and diplomacy have been around for a long, long time. If you think about ping pong diplomacy or US uh, you know, US refusal to go to the 1980 Olympics and Soviet's uh, similar refusal in 1984. This sort of high-level kind of interactions have been like an ever-present kind of topic of analysis. But actually, sport more broadly and how sport is used by not just state actors but non-state actors is something that's only recently scholars have paid attention to. And this paper today, which kind of grew out of my PhD, so my PhD didn't really look at this, but because it's just extra stuff that I found, you know, kind of feeds into that. So, before 1953, um, the Iran America Society um, had undertaken the bulk of work in promoting the norms and values and ideas of the United States. In Iran, um, the Iran America Society was established in 1925, um, and the institute sought to promote the learning of the English language while also providing a meeting place for pro-American or more broadly Western-oriented Iranians. Um, the Iran America Society had the approval of State Department, but not much funding. It relied on charitable benefactors from within Iran and from a small stipend from the embassy and the consulate in order to sustain itself. It ended up breaking into two, um, so uh, from 1933 up until 1952, there was the Iran America Society and the original originally titled Society for America and Iran. So, um, however, uh, both organisations would come together right in the midst of the Anglo-Iranian oil crisis, which is where growing, or this kind of marked start of growing US governmental interest, at least, in Iranian affairs. So in April 1951, um, Mohammad Mossadegh um, was appointed Prime Minister of Iran, and the first thing that he did was to nationalise Iran's oil industry, which had been in British government's control since the discovery of oil in 1908. Um, and a failure to resolve this dispute combined with the US government's fears that Mossadegh possessed pro-Soviet or pro-communist sympathies, culminated in a joint Anglo-American coup that toppled him. Um, many Iranians were opposed to the US government's decision to help overthrow Mossadegh. Uh, they deemed the issues of his premiership, which were in no doubt, you know, surmountable, um, you know, and the oil crisis, domestic matters, nothing to do with the United States or Britain. Um, so in telegrams to the State Department in Washington, uh, Roy Melbourne, who was the first secretary of the US Embassy, outlined how, what kind of, how growing anti-Americanism was manifesting itself in the country. 
Um, he discussed a series of attacks on American property and American people in major Iranian cities, and he also proceeded to outline the origins and implications of this popular term, Yankee Go Home, uh, which had been increasingly kind of brought itself into that popular Iranian popular consciousness. It was graffitied everywhere, and this was something that the embassy were particularly concerned about. Um, this had started off as a left-wing Iranian rallying cry, um, but American diplomats and business figures had reported hearing Yankee go home across the country, and Melbourne feared that if this anti-Americanism wasn't dealt with head-on, then the United States would be unable to sustain a long-term presence in the country. So, initially, what the USIS, or the United States Information Agency, sought to do was to engage with the Iranian public through cultural diplomacy. So the architect of these efforts was an individual named Robert Payne. Um, Robert Payne served as a public affairs officer of the chief of USIS operations in Iran from 1955 through to 1958. But before that, he'd occupied a similar role in Egypt. Um, in this period, Egypt had, you know, witnessed a revolution where the pro-Western ruler was replaced by an Arab nationalist regime. These developments had shocked Payne, um, and Payne, uh, you know, you know, having paid little attention to kind of like cultural diplomacy and the promotion of America and the West before, he now regarded this as crucial to the role of public affairs officer. He had previously seen the role as just seemingly a um, you know, an anti-communist, you know, focused, a cold warrior kind of role, but now he kind of appreciated that actually encompassed the promotion of American values abroad. Um, Payne and the USIS placed a great deal of emphasis on boosting the involvement of Iranian youth in extracurricular activities. Uh, this was a group that the USIS had identified as quite left-wing, increasingly mm -hmm. radical, but more than that, and what was really concerning, was their negative perceptions of the US education system. So up until the early 1950s, the, arguably the two greatest influences on Iran, like state powers, had been the Russian Empire and Britain. And they had involved themselves in Iran's economic affairs, they'd also set up schools in the country. And many Iranians had a much more superior view of the Soviet and British education systems. They deemed it much more intellectually rigorous, uh, greater emphasis on science, technology and engineering, and they deemed American education inferior. Um, and the USIS wished to underline to Iran's youth, as well as the society at large, that yes, the US system doesn't focus as much on STEM subjects as these other countries do, but its students are much more well-rounded, socially aware, worldly. Um, and what Payne tried to do was he organised a youth activities seminar which was held in Tehran in 1957, May 1957. Uh, the event brought together government figures, willing volunteers, and it was a means to foster a culture of extracurricular activities among Iran's youth. Um, you know, Payne call on delegates to pay greater attention to young people and the then Prime Minister Hussein Allah you know, was attended and was impressed with 
Payne's arguments. Uh, he pledged to invest and expand in the Iranian extracurricular programme. Um, you know, one such initiative was the forming of the Soraya Club. So this was an organisation that offered training and guidance to young Iranian women. Uh, this was established um, in July 1957, and it was named after the Shah's then wife, uh, Soraya Esfandiri Bakhtiari, uh, pictured on your left of the picture. And its activities closely followed those of the, young, of the US Young Women's Christian Association. So its programmes and initiatives encouraged its members to, and I quote, become good wives along American lines, end quote. So there were sessions on sewing and cooking, uh, the management of a modern household, the use of household appliances, and what the USS did was that they supplied advisors, voluntary workers, and provided grants for some of the youth workers and volunteers to attend courses in the United States. Um, sports diplomacy efforts were initially closely tied to these cultural initiatives. So, as the embassy, US Embassy in Tehran indicated in a telegram to the State Department in May 1956, Olympic medals and international success at sporting events are key indicators of belonging to what they refer to as the free world. Um, you know, and USIS efforts also would help complement their work with Iranian youth. Sport, the agency argued, would provide a distraction and dissuade young people from engaging in subversive activities. Um, US sports diplomacy in Iran began with the visit of Malvin Whitfield, a renowned African-American athlete who was approaching the end of his career by the mid-1950s. Uh, Whitfield had served in Korea and in the Second World War, but Whitfield had also uh, competed at the 1948 London and 1952 Olympic Games. Uh, he had um, won several Olympic medals at both those tournaments, and you know he was also an advocate of promoting America overseas. He worked for the USIA. Um, undertook a broader tour of Asia and Africa in between 1954 and 1955, and Iran was his first stop on that trip. Uh, so he delivered talks, he uh, demonstrated his athletic prowess in front of large crowds, um, and one such event which garnered significant press and radio coverage was a program in the USS Auditorium that documented the US's medal-topping efforts at the 1952 Olympic Games. Uh, Whitfield addressed the audience before, before the documentary, stood for questions after, and discussed his own experiences at this tournament. Uh, Whitfield's visit to Iran drew considerable popular and media attention, and in light of this, the USIS decided to change tack. They focused more on sport. Um, you know, according to USIS telegrams, these policies develop more interest, more enthusiasm, and a greater sense of camaraderie among Iranian people than any other USIS endeavour. Um, in such a sports-loving country, there was no surer way to connect with a large cross-section of the population and win Iranian people's hearts. So, with these considerations in mind, um, the USIS recruited David Alberton a former US high jumper and high school athletics coach in Toledo, Ohio, 
uh, to work with Iranian athletes. Uh, all Britain was an avowed Republican who had close ties with John Foster Dulles, Secretary of State, and it was Dulles that recommended All Britain to be sent to Iran in the first instance. Um, all Britain was a celebrated Olympic athlete in his own right. In the 1936 Berlin Olympics, he received silver in the high jump, finishing second to Jesse Owens. Um, and Albritton was initially meant to arrive in April 1955 and depart in August of that year. But the Iranian authorities pushed for a stay to be extended until January 1957. Um, Albritton wanted to focus on the teaching of athletic coaches and he centred most of his efforts in so doing on Tehran, the capital. Um, he sought to create a trickle-down effect, so in shaping the pedagogical practices of these instructors, they would then in turn use what they'd learned from Albritton and instruct Iranian athletes and you know, physical education students in the same vein. Um, so Albritton invited all the PE teachers and athletic coaches within the Tehran metropolitan area, again to the USS Auditorium, he underlined to these Iranian coaches and instructors during the six-week evening lecture course um, the importance of film performances and movements of students and athletes. Um, and many of the arguments that he discussed were you know, taken verbatim from uh, Kenneth Doherty's uh, Modern Track and Field, which was the most, it was up until the early 70s, was the guidebook for Western, um, Western European and North American athletic coaches. Um, at the end of the course, each instructor received a copy of this book, as well as a 16mm camera in which to film their students and athletes. So, at the same time, to generate interest and popular goodwill <laughs> towards the United States, Albritton invited US weightlifters to visit the country. This was the 1950s, after all, the golden age of American weightlifting. So the group included celebrated weightlifters. So you had Paul Anderson, Tommy Kono, Joe Pittman, Dave Shepard, Charles Vinci, and Stanley Stanchek. And all six individuals had won or held Olympic and world champion titles in different weightlifting categories. Um, the press coverage was wider than anything that had come before. Um, and you know, this was the country's national sport after all, and a pastime that the Shah allegedly enjoyed. Um, you know, and the success of this, so over a one over a six day period, there were various um, weightlifting contests with fellow Iranian weightlifters, they attracted large crowds, um, and the success of this um, compelled Albritton to persuade um, Robert Mathias, a decathlete, to visit Iran. Uh, Matthias spent the majority of his time in Tehran and demonstrated his athletic skills at two separate exhibits. Uh, one was in the capital's main arena for track and field events. This supposedly had a capacity of 10,000 people, an estimated 25,000 turned up. Uh, many of them were school children, so I presume that that was why more could fit in than... And most of it was terracing, not seats, so again, it was a bit worse than the tube, I imagine. Um, <laughs> Matthias spent the majority of his time, you know, at you know at these exhibitions, um, and he also assisted Albritton in providing coaching sessions for the Iranian track and field Olympic team. 
Trachtenbergism meant that Iranians traditionally hadn't really gone for before. Whenever Iranians had competed at the Olympics, they tended to go for weightlifting and wrestling. And these are still sports that, or events that Iran tends to medal at today. So track and field was a new thing, and it was something that they were trying to do for the 1956 Melbourne Olympics. Um, but all Britain's biggest achievement in this period, arguably, was establishing ties with an individual called Mustafa Mezbezadeh, who was the editor of Kehan, which was one of Iran's most prominent newspapers. And Mezbezadeh was also a close confidant of the Shah, and he was eager for Western support for Iran's <coughs> socio-economic modernisation. All Britain persuaded him that this was actually key, that sport was key to Iran's social and economic progress. And he claimed that this could be brought about through a regular weekly sports supplement in one of Iran's major newspapers. Um, and Mezbezadeh agreed, and he created a sports supplement originally titled Kehan Sport. And coverage would include track meets, the activities of various governing federations, the outcomes of sporting and school contests. Um, and the USIS regularly supplies stories that praise the US athletes' training and diet and criticise inferior facilities and apparatus available to their Soviet and Eastern Bloc counterparts. So, all Britain departed Iran in January 1957. Uh, Selden Chapin, the then US ambassador, claimed that all Britain had accomplished much. Uh, 80 previous Iranian track and field records were broken. Um, the authorities were now aware of the importance of sport. The army now had its own athletic team that competed at the most recent international athletic meet for military services in Athens. Um, the fact that it had been extended at the request of the Iranian authorities, uh, you know, indicated that the coach had had undoubtedly a tremendous impact on the athletes that he worked with, but also officials around him. Um, they were all clearly dedicated to All Britain, and they worked hard to please him, and wherever All Britain went in Iran, crowds flocked to see him. Um, in response to these initiatives, however, the Soviet Union commenced their own sports diplomacy efforts with Iran. They focused their efforts on football, which was a sport that was growing exponentially in popularity in the country. Uh, so in April 1956, they invited Persopolis and Taj, which were Iran's and Tehran's two biggest clubs, and actually two biggest clubs in the country, uh, to tour the Soviet Union. And then the Iranian authorities followed this up with a round-robin tournament two months later, involving FC Baku, Dynamo Tbilisi, and Persopolis and Taj. Um, all matches were heavily promoted in the Iranian media, Contests were played at capacity crowds, and the US were incredibly frustrated because, as obviously America has a different conception of football <laughs> to the rest of the world, um, it meant that they couldn't really compete with this, they couldn't match it. And what was really frustrating was that Soviet and Iranian footballing contests were equal standing. The Iranians had the chance to win. Any of these athletic visits, any of these weightlifting exhibitions, well, undoubtedly, the Americans were the heavy, were David, were Goliath, and the Iranians were David. And this was a huge problem and incredibly frustrating to USIS officials. Equally, the agency's officials doubted whether sports diplomacy could yield any major long term benefits. Um, 
Despite Kahan Sports' exponential growth in circulation figures, uh, the Iranian authorities displayed little interest in funding sport. Um, this was, you know, and not only that, but there was a huge amount of discord and disunity within the sporting authorities. And this is best exemplified during the visit of the Syracuse Nationals basketball team in May 1957. Uh, so they were one of the biggest basketball teams in the planet at that time. And, but the Iranian officials were unable to agree on how to promote the visit. This visit, in the end, was not promoted. So when the Syracuse Nationals arrived, they played two matches to a combined audience of 150 people. Uh, this was incredibly embarrassing, and all Britain, in the end, got very angry at the authorities and told them to essentially buck their ideas up, or a sporting culture will not be fostered within the country. Um, these issues, however, were inconsequential. Um, by late 1957, uh, the US had moved away from sports diplomacy and went back to promoting cultural efforts. Um, this is partly down to Albritton's departure, because there's no figure willing or able to replace Albritton. Um, many American coaches that were approached didn't want to move to the country, even temporarily for a short-term period. But also, more pressingly, there's a desire for a more balanced programme. So there have been far too many sporting visits and not any cultural exhibits. And US ICE officials feared that this would lead to many Iranians deeming Americans uncultured sports fanatics. Um, so what the US ICE instead did was refocus their energies and they started working with the University of Tehran, which was one of the most, and still is, one of the most prestigious um, higher education institutions in the Islamic world. Um, and it worked to improve its provision and teaching of the arts and humanities. Also worked to professionalise its infrastructure. Uh, many of its lecturers, for example, were also politicians and treated their lecturing as second jobs. Many of them hadn't updated their teaching for about 25 years, uh, which was incredibly problematic. Uh, and this is the sort of thing that the USIS sought to work with the university to improve. So, kind of to round it up to conclude, um, you know, some of the, you know, I've got talked about some of the public diplomacy initiatives, but as the ones I've talked about demonstrate, the motives for executing such policies in Iran cannot be merely contained, confined to the containment of communism. You know, equally important, if not slightly more important, was the promotion of the American way of life in the country. Um, secondly, uh, the malleability of US public diplomacy. So it was ever changing, you know, from culture to sport, back again. And this was because of the individual based approach of its functions and activities. It was down to individuals itself, there was no structural kind of elements in place. Um, and finally, uh, public diplomacy isn't just something that, you know, you know, in, you know, it's an ever kind of present key tenet of US-Iranian relations. You know, not just in the 1950s, but all the way to the present, despite current difficulties. Thank you very much. Thanks.